0: You know, China is losing its demographic dividend. The workforce is shrinking, while the rest of the population is fastly aging. So it's that demographic challenge is actually forced the hand of the government to abandon the Deng Xiaoping's policy of, you know, hide your strength, beat your time. Now Now they're like, we're not gonna beat our time because we don't have a whole lot of time. So we need to be as aggressive as possible to get as much as we can now.
1: My guest today is Helen Rowley. Helen is a recognized American entrepreneur, writer, and speaker. She's a senior contributor to The Federalist. Her writings have also appeared in various national media, including The Wall Street Journal, Fox News, and the National Review. She is the author of several books, including her award-winning autobiography, Confucius Never Said. Helen was born in China and has first-handedly experienced the dramatic cultural and political changes in modern Chinese history. Her latest book, backlash, how China's aggression has backfired, shows how communist China, like the COVID virus that began there, has spread its influence aggressively around the world. I recently sat down with Helen to talk about China's ambitions and strategies to achieve their goals and their influence and how they continue to grow. Helen Rowley, thank you so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it.
0: Thank you for
1: having me, Charles. What I found so interesting, Helen, uh, your book, Backlash, How China's Aggression Has Backfired. I've read a lot of books uh, and articles and a whole bunch of things on the Internet in terms of YouTube videos about China. But what I find really interesting, and I thought my listeners would as well, is your perspective, simply because you grew up in China, you're telling us from a Chinese perspective of growing up in the country, coming here a couple of decades ago, and what you're seeing now. So I I wanna thank you for sharing that perspective with us. I think it's so important now, uh, especially as China continues to become a superpower, getting stronger and stronger.
0: Yeah, I would love to do that because I also find it's important, as I mentioned in a forward of this new book, Backlash, about why it's so important to have a perspective by someone who experienced both culture and knows that because there's so many things get lost in the translation and we do have a establishment in foreign policy in this country that they have been consistently wrong and but they have been consistently fail for you know fail upward so it's important that you have a unique and honest perspective about china
1: so helen what is the number one thing in your opinion that americans just are misinformed about china
0: Um, I think the number one thing about what's so misinformed about China, not just Americans, to people outside of China, is um, it's very clear, a black and white binary view about China. You now, China is complicated. Um, you know, it. When you talk about China, it's very important to make a distinction. Are we talking about the ruling communist party or are we talking about the Chinese people? When, when it come to the ruling communist party, there's there's a lot of misunderstanding about nature of the party, what the party is really aimed for. I think it was those misunderstandings that influenced the foreign policies, not just in the United States, but also uh, with our Western you know, demar- uh, dem- uh, democracy allies. And it's those misinformed uh, ideas and illusions, wishful thinkings that direct around policies towards China. And then when it come to Chinese people, Chinese people, you know, even though the majority of us may look alike, but we are just as diverse as people of any other country. They're, I'm not just talking about the skin colors or different languages, but also many different ideas. That's why people, always ask me, so what do Chinese people think about that? I'm like, well, it's very difficult to say if there's a uniform opinion about it. And in addition, you really can't trust any popular polls in China because you're always wondering in a totalitarian regime whether people are really telling the truth to the pollsters. So I think when you come to China, it's important that we put every topic in a context, not just in the historical context, but also in its you know contemporary political context, understanding the different uh, points of view from both the Chinese people, the diverse opinion of both Chinese people, as well as what the Communist Party tried to, yeah, tries
1: to achieve. That's an excellent point. So let's focus on the Chinese party, the Chinese government. What are we getting so wrong that you look and you probably chuckle to yourself and say, my gosh, these Westerners, they just don't get what China is all about?
0: So I mentioned in my book, what are we going so wrong is we assume uh, when I say we, I mean the foreign policy and the political leaders and, and also many business people for decades assume that as long as the west continues to engage china economically then the chinese communist party will eventually recognize the benefit of economic growth they will embrace the political freedom too they will become more like us right they will embrace freedom of speech you know voting rights they will become just more like us and that's fundamentally wrong but that's the illusion that has guided the three decades of foreign policies since 1970s, when Nixon visited China, that has been guiding our policy to China. So even after 1989 Tiananmen Square, most Western uh, Western countries, including United States, refused to sanction China severely because they believe as long as we continue engaging economically, they will change politically. So the, what they didn't understand is the Communist Party I'm talking about the party, the Communist Party, if you look at the party charters, if you look at the Marxist, you know, Leninist ideas, they will never become like us. They deeply resent us. They resent the liberty and the ideology, the fundamental values that the Western democracies was founded upon, appreciate and advocate for. They're deeply hostile to those things. And the only reason that uh, you know China, the Chinese Communist Party, embraced the economic reform in the 1980s because they were forced in, they were forced into it because the first 30 years from 1949, the founding of Communist China, to 1979, after Mao's death, Mao died in 1976. But in those 30-year time span, the Communist Party ran China to the ground. The, the economy was at the uh, brink of, you know, a total bankruptcy f- fell out for the, com- for the entire country. So they had no choice. They were, the Communist Party members are pragmatic people. You know, they know when to buy their times, you know, to hide their strengths, by their times. So that's what they did in 1980s. We recognize in order to maintain their governance, maintain their power, they have to embrace uh, some change. But as you can tell by now, that um, 30 years of economic engagement not only failed to change the Communist Party to embrace liberal values, instead it enriched this authoritarian regime, this party that who now is doing everything it can, it's capable to undermine the liberal world order under the liberal values and try to impose its version of governance not just inside of China, but to the rest of the world. So,
1: you know, it's it's a great point. Uh, You know, I'm just thinking when uh, China started to crack down on Hong Kong, many Westerners just couldn't understand where this was coming from. Well, they gave us their word. They signed an agreement in the China economic miracle. Hong Kong was going to be run separately and without any interference. And China went in uh, to Hong Kong and... Mm-hmm. uh I, I i can't even say take over it just just eradicated the freedoms there in a heartbeat
0: right and i think hong kong is a classic example that's really a wake up call which i mentioned in my book i think the two events happened last year hong kong and the coronavirus uh, pandemic those are two wake up uh, calls for uh, people and the governments worldwide because you know we can talk about what happened with the Uyghur muslims but it happened deep inside of china Many people don't even know what's the difference between Uyghur Muslim versus, you know, Han Chinese, the whole culture, his history behind that. But Hong Kong is such an international city, a financial harbor, and what's happening in Hong Kong day by day, minute by minute it was exposed right in front of us, right? And there are also so many foreign business, foreign, foreigners in Hong Kong. So we witnessed Hong Kong's descent from one of the freest place in the world. Now to just another ordinary Chinese city, you know, you can't, you can't commemorate June 4th in Hong Kong anymore. You know, they are censorship of uh, journalists and, you know, their censorship and arrests of uh, a pro-democracy movements, you know, activists. None of this happened in Hong Kong prior to last year. Yeah, I, so, I, I, and it's all happened within two, you know, a little less than three decades, we saw what happened in Hong Kong.
1: Yeah. And, and what I found so amazing watching what China was doing in Hong Kong was it was totally exposed. You saw it play out with putting in a, a puppet government, with starting arrests, with a crackdown mm-hmm. on civil liberties, then crackdown on wealthy people who were calling out and then rioting. And the world just watched it, it, was, it was a perfect playbook. They they didn't do anything that if you knew about China and its communist government, nothing mm. should have surprised us. Yet it did. Why is that?
0: It Again, it's based on the illusion they didn't understand the true nature of the Communist Party. That's why it's important to read the books like a backlash, because it's actually showed you. The true nature of the Communist Party, if you go back to read the Marxist Leninism, you know, their books and the Communist Party charter, it is against liberal values. It's fundamentally hostile to liberal values. Therefore, there's no amount of economic engagement will ever change that. It's just a matter of time. So the party is so pragmatic, it knows when to fold. That you know, that's why when they signed the agreement with the United Kingdom back in you know 1980s about the uh, transition of Hong Kong's control to uh, to mainland China, yes, they promised in the international treaty that they would at least keep Hong Kong's you know political and uh, individual freedom for 50 years. Oh, they couldn't even do that. 20 years since the signing the treaty. You know, you hear China's foreign ministry people openly say, well, it's a historical do- document. It's irrelevant anymore. And this is not the first time, and it's not going to be the last time for the Communist Party to sign anything. It has no intention to, you know, uh, to agree to really agree to or stick to. It's not going to be the first time. It's uh, promised something. It has no intention to keep the promise. So,
1: 1983, when Ronald Reagan... Uh, had his speechwriter write his now famous speech, where he refers to the Soviet Union as the evil empire. I think it was crossed out three or four times. They didn't want him to say that. And Ronald Reagan kept getting back, "No, I'm going to call the Soviets what they are. They are an evil empire, and they are the focus of evil in the modern world." It took one person with courage to constantly say that. Are you seeing that anywhere in the, in the world today? About uh, saying that about China. <laughs>
0: A little bit, but not enough. I, I, we would never—the the West would never won the war, Cold War against the communism in the nineteen eighties, if not for leaders like Reagan and the Margaret Thatcher and the Pope that who knew, recognized the true nature of uh, communism and all, always, you know, speak up, spoke up about it and was determined to crush it. And for now, we really lack like that kind of leadership. I saw some uh, in the Trump administration. I know a lot of people do not like him, um, but, I th- but I think in terms of foreign policy, actually, especially the last two years of his term, in terms of foreign policy, that's actually was one of his strong suit. Maybe not all because of him, but he did surround himself with right people, right? Secretary Pompeo was one of my favorite um, cabinet member of the Trump administration. And he, he almost Reaganistic. you know, he always talk about the Communist party in its you know in a very direct term and he always made a distinction between the party and the people and he always called out a party as it is he used the most he's probably the most hated person by the by the Chinese government and but at, at the say it just shows you how much his uh secretary Pompeo's words and actions really challenged them and I think it, it is um you know because the trump administration brought a new sense of realism back into the American foreign policies. And you can even see a little bit of continuation in a Biden administration. You know, the Biden administration came into pop came into uh, power, you know, wow, that they're gonna override anything Trump, right? Anything, anything Trump forward or against any policy Trump said they're gonna you know erase. But when it's come to foreign policies, you can see there is some continuation when it's come to China. You can also see there a, uh, you know, today if you go to the Capitol Hill, the only thing the only issue that the left and the right politicians on either side could really agree on is about China. You know, they, they may agree, they may still disagree about what's the right approach or the policies we should put in place. But at least they there's a consensus from both left and right that China is a threat. It's a threat to liberal world order. It's a, it's a threat to liberal values we cherish and we need to do something about it. I mean, there's a wide disagreement what that something is or are, but at least there is agreement there. So, but we need more people, um, like President Reagan and Secretary Pompeo, really speak up and speak out in this very realistic term to nail down what the Communist Party really stands for.
1: So, so I'm going to ask you, Helen, what does the Communist Party really stand for? Tear, tear, off, tear, tear the screen back. What is the Chinese government? What's their ultimate aim? Why are they so? Are they evil? Uh, uh, what's their ultimate end game? Tell me about that.
0: It's about power. It's really about raw power. So it's actually less ideological than that's why they're so flexible and pragmatic. It's about anything they can do to grab power and maintain power. Actually, that, that is really the essence of socialism slash communism. It's not about everybody has everything. It's not about equality. It's about how a small group of people can grasp as much power as they can and maintain power. That's why you look at throughout the history, recent history, any country who implemented socialism, whether it's Soviet Union, you know Cuba, Venezuela, you know, um, Cambodia, Vietnam, any country, whoever practiced the socialism, it's always end up in dictatorship. It's because it's always about grabbing and maintaining power, do anything to get the power. So that's, so that's what this is about. It's about power. It's, so that's why, the communist party is deeply hostile to liberal world order to liberal values because you know our values of you know equality everybody's equal in front of law the freedom of expression you know our our right to bear arms all of these values are direct challenge to them challenge to them to for their maintenance and the, you know grab of power that is why they're so hostile to and they will never change the hostility and for Chinese Communist Party particularly, especially under the current leadership, you know, they don't want this power in Asia or control China or in Asia. They want world power. It's not necessarily gonna be in the old terms such as, you know, they're not gonna be like Alexander the Great, you know, go over, conquer the rest of the world. No, because nowadays, you know, in the digital age, you can you can exercise tremendous power without having to send soldiers, you know, across the borders. Um, China has amassed enormous economic power, and you know it's developing its a technology industry as well. So there are other ways for uh, what what I call digital Leninism, you know, digital socialism, that they can grasp and control power and build this alternative uh, world order that with China centered, you know, with the Chinese model, rather than this as a replacement, I should say. Uh, as the liberal world order that we have enjoyed since the World War II.
1: Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors.
2: (laughs) You hear that? That's what turkeys sound like. You know what else sounds like turkeys? This.
0: There's a lot of value there. How do you see that? Yeah, you really have to break it up into the sections of
2: healthcare. Not surprising when the 21st Annual Trust Barometer published by Edelman Research shows that more Americans distrust institutions like the media, government, and business than ever before. That's why podcasts like The Charles Mizrahi Show have taken off like a moonshot. Because, as Edelman reports, people are craving facts. Real facts. Not the whitewashed mumbo-jumbo cooked up by the financial media. So if you want straight-up facts on where the real money is made in stocks, and you want it served up in a way that's fun, simple to follow, and profitable, stop listening to the turkeys and listen to America's number one alpha investor, Charles Mizrahi, and how he helped an American patriot you know well make more money in two weeks than most investors make in two years. For more details, go to investingpatriots.com. That's investingpatriots, all one word, dot com. I guarantee you'll be glad you did.
1: You know, during COVID, uh, I think, I think I hope that Americans saw how vulnerable we are to China and the supply lines when we found out most of our medicines, most of our pharmaceuticals, masks, so on and so forth, uh, just click on Amazon and you couldn't get so many things because they weren't being shipped from China. Uh, Is that, how's that gonna change?
0: Well, that depends on do we, uh, do the West, especially United States has the willpower to change and how we are going to approach it. In today's global economy, it's very difficult to completely decoup you know from another country especially a country who a economic power who basically is the manufacturer you know world you know world man, uh, manufacturer uh we have so many you know economic ties the with is china and i you know as a free market believer i don't think a complete you know decoupling is a decoupling is really necessary um but we do face a, a serious choice about you know, there's some industry that is so strategic, like you mentioned, you mentioned pharmaceutical, um, you know, something since along the line was defense industry or any technology that have dual use can be both used for civilian purposes, military purpose, right, Um, there are strategic industries that we need to be very careful. Um, There are also more uh, U.S. companies need to recognize the, Fundamentally, the value difference, right? These American companies like, like Apple, like Google, they become successful in a free market system. And, but now they're kowtowing to China because they're eyeing for the huge market access. But uh, sooner or later, they have to recognize that uh, um, an is they cannot, their business model cannot really thrive in the authoritarian regime, you know, in in that the illiberal, illiberal uh, society, so they have to recognize that if they are, but right now they they don't. Right now they are willing to do anything to have access to a market for the short term of you know prof, uh, for short term profit. So they are actually against act, and not only they are aiding the authoritarian regime in China, but also they are actually practicing illiberal. Business behaviors here in the United States, right? Like censor books, you know, cancel conservative videos, and at the same time lecturing us about racial equality and uh, you know all, all those other social problems United States face. So it's important that um, there's a, a famous saying. This is the only time I would I would quote uh, Vladimir Lenin. Um, he famously said that the capitalist will sell us the ropes so we can use it to hind them, right? I often use that when I talk about American businesses as a short-sightedness because they do not recognize what they are actively doing is in exchange for short-term profit is actively selling a rope so the Communist Party not only can hind them but also can kill the liberal world order along the way. Right. So there is need to be a greater awakening of that i think people on the people level there is a lot more awakening from that again based on witnessing what's happening in hong kong and our own experience the coronavirus pandemic but at the corporation level at our elite class level that awakening is not quite there yet
1: yeah but you know i have i i i don't think there's an alternative in some in some cases for example uh friends of mine are big manufacturers and they have 70 to 90% of their production in China. And they told me that during the coronavirus, during last year, they were looking to move to Vietnam and other countries. But they said the capacity for manufacturing that China has is unequaled anywhere else in the world. So even if they wanted to move their operations to Vietnam or Cambodia or uh, uh, India, it just physically was unable. They would go to sell Walmart or other retailers and they were not going to deal with price increases because for these other countries, you cannot get the labor prices that you get in China. You can't get the delivery. You can't get the shipping. You just can't get it. So if I'm a CEO of a company that makes widgets in China Mm -hmm. and I agree with everything you said, what am I to do and still stay competitive and still stay in business?
0: Yes, I, I, I see that. But but so I have a couple of things I would say to you as a CEO. Number one is uh, China did not have that manufacture power, you know, 30 years ago, right? It's also it, it it took time to build it. And Western businesses help Western businesses investment and technology help build it. So if you can build it in China, you can build it somewhere else too. Wait, and wait, also wait, hang
1: on, hang one second. You don't have a labor force as big as China anywhere else in the world that's willing to work for those kind of wages. So what do we do about that? Let me take what you said. No,
0: and, no Actually, China's labor cost is increasing. You know, you don't you don't get the cheapest labor you know in China anymore. It's actually if you just you know labor intensive industry, Vietnam, Cambodia actually offer much cheaper labor than China. No, that's you, one. You,
1: you are correct. You are correct, but they do not have the capacity. To produce what China can,
0: you build the capacity. That's one thing. Second thing is, um, in terms of certain uh, certain industries, you discover you, you build alternatives. Uh, for example, let's talk about rare earths a little bit. You know, China dominating dominated in rare rare earths. You know, pr- uh, production. Not because China has the uh, biggest uh, deposit of rare earths. It's because that uh, you know China has the most pr- uh, processing capacities, and that capacity was built by American businesses' investment technology. Because before that, American business used to have the biggest capacities of uh, processing rare earths. Okay. So, and rare earth minerals are very important. You know, we use it every day in our phones. You know, technology, electric cars, right, you know, right, magnets, right. everything. Okay. Right. So China has been using its uh, control of production of rare earths to coerce other countries, to bend our country to its political will. So Japan you know, has a long history with China. So Japan in the last decades recognized that it's not good for their own national security if they continue to rely on China as a provider of rare earth. So Japan has instituted national policies. They, did several things. Number one, they invested in technologies to uh, create alternatives. And they also increased innovations to reduce the usage of rare earths in their products. So a decade later, right now, unlike any other countries in the world, Japan, you know, if, if China have a sanctioned embargo of rare earths to Japan, Japan's economy can totally survive. Because it took them ten years to get there, but they got there. Okay. So it can be done. So,
2: so you're, basically, but the thing is,
0: you're basically too many thinking. CEOs are saying it cannot be done because they're focusing on what I'm gonna to report to my shareholders next yeah, quarter.
1: Right. So 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 I hear you. Yeah, it's a good point. Good point. So they're playing the long game and we're playing the short game. So we're looking to get goods out the next quarter to be the cheapest supplier over this short period of time to keep our supply chains moving. And no one, not no one, I shouldn't say anyone, but very few are willing to take the long-term perspective, which you're saying it's going to take in terms of cost and in terms of patience and in terms of time to build this out.
0: Yes. I I was, uh, you know, right before we talk, I was just finishing an article about uh, the solar industry you know there's a dirty secret in our clean energy push is because you know a majority of the solar materials especially the key components came from China and especially came from region in China Xinjiang heavily rely on forced you know slave laborers so are we going to sit back here knowing that uh, we can enjoy clean energy because it's built on build on the back of slave laborers or, but pat ourselves on our back to so, say, but are we are better for the environment? Or are we going to take a stand to say, you know what? Maybe there are different technology we can use to still get a clean energy or build up Americans' solar you know, industry from raw material to components without having to rely on China's you know, slave labor? I mean, there's always, there's always a choice to make. Um, too, too bad that, that too many companies choose not to make that choice right now.
1: Well, they make that, you know, look, they're forced into a position where they where the choice is always there. You're right. I, I shouldn't say that there's no choice. There is, a, there is a choice, but there's a cost for that choice. It means losing market share. It means uh, having your competitor uh, sell to areas of the marketplace that you can't sell because of price or delivery or manufacturing capabilities. So you have to really take it on the shin. And and, and a lot of shareholders, I, I'd say majority of shareholders, they don't take that long-term view. Most CEOs are, are are mismatched with if they want to take a long-term view, they really can't because they have to produce quarterly results.
0: Right. But it's really a short-term cost versus long-term cost. So first of all, confronting China in today's day and age always comes with a cost. And that's why the Chinese government is betting on You know, they're they're using their their economic power as a coercion, as a weapon to try to force other countries to bend to their will right now because, you know, too many countries, too many businesses are afraid to suffer a cost. But you also have to look at the long term. Over the long term, we are dependent on China for basic pharmaceuticals, we are dependent on them for for data, you know, for technology, for basic supplies of solars, let's say, you know, what's that gonna do with our national security? Can we even have the ability to, you know, to live on our own or protect ourselves? What's that cost gonna be like? So there's no cost-free way to deal with China right Right. now. And that's the result of our own policy failure.
1: Right, cybersecurity, uh, identity, uh, uh, identity theft, um, defense—it's all—it's all one part of us. I, I do hear that. So it seems to me we have to really get together as a nation and have uh, foresight and take it on the chin for a while. And which means, which which I happen to agree with you, it will cause short-term mis uh, dislocations, but the long-term benefits are going to weigh out. Well, look we got to do it anyway it has to be done if not today it's going to be done tomorrow is that what you're basically saying
0: yes or if we if we choose not to do anything now um uh, China is going to force us to act to accept you know would they would they stand for maybe 10 years from now or 20 years from now it's going to be very soon
1: yeah,
0: it, uh, it, it's because they are already on they're already on the way there yeah, it's just there's no getting away from it
1: it's just amazing the pragmatic, long-term game plan that the Chinese government had for the past 30 years by moving to capitalism and not just doing it okay, doing it exceedingly well to a point where they became a superpower in a generation or so. It's just absolutely staggering.
0: Yes, but that also should inspire us to know that uh, we should be able to take a short-term pain because it can be done, right? Capitalism was burst here. United States in the United Kingdom you know we knew how capitalism works and we we are uh, losing our uh, grasp of a free market for a while but we but we knew how it works and it worked wonders for us too and now we just need to get back to do what we know the best I still believe in the end you know free market and free market principles are so much work works so much better than an authoritarianism you know freedom works so much better than force uh, we just have to be able to be willing to take a short term sacrifice and you're right it's it takes a national effort because in china it's a national effort it, the chinese government the the communist party took a has taken on a whole of a whole of economy approach, a whole of a government approach, basically everything I do, they do from education, technology, economic policies, you know, national defense policies, their space policies, everything they do is going to moving the country towards the goal they want to. So we need something similar effort. I don't know how it can be done. You know, I will leave that to the policy makers, but, it takes that kind of, like, like we need to get back to the, going back to the, going to the moon, that kind of national spirit. We, right. we definitely need
1: that. No, it is absolutely amazing watching China over the past 20 to 30 years, that when the Chinese government gets behind something, it is like a force that's unstoppable. Everything converges on a fine point and they plow forward. Just, just amazing.
0: Right, but I think most credit goes to the Chinese people. Right. Chinese people are industrious and Chinese people are intelligent. Chinese people are always, you know, general hard workers. And and you know, I don't know if you watched my pre videos. That the, the whole idea of economic reform, you know, opening up, economic opening up, was really originated from a group of you know illiterate farmers, farmers yeah. who who were so desperate that they just decided, you know, they have to make a change. And they, you know, they did it at a risk of losing their life and, you know, everything they had. So let's give the credit to the Chinese people. Um, the, the the Chinese government probably, like I said, they were they were forced into that situation because they actually ran the economy to the ground, and their economic policies and the political endless political movement uh, were responsible for at least the forty million deaths in thirty years. So let's not give them too much credit. Um, the credit really goes to. The economic miracle, the credit of the economic miracle really goes to uh, the billion or more Chinese people who are so industrious, intelligent, and hardworking.
1: Okay, fair enough. So you grew up in China, and you grew up in a communist country. Uh, you knew hunger, you knew what it was like to be hungry. Uh, you yeah. knew what it was like not to have. And how, how do you see Americans today especially young Americans talk about and romanticizing socialism when you grew up and saw how terrible it was and the costs uh, that Mm -hmm. it took out of family life, out of the population, uh, the millions of deaths, uh, uh, the the value of human life really had no value. Right. I I think
0: that's, What's happening, the the situation you, you described is really um example of the failure of our education system. We do not teach our kids, you know, real history, um, especially given that uh, the there's so little restrictions, you know, people can find information on the internet. There's there's you know, we still have free speech. So there's tons of information people want to seek for. And we but we do not educate our kids. We do not educate them the true evil of socialism. And we do not teach them what's what's so good about the free market the capitalism. So, so today's kids, when you talk to them, you're like, oh, um you when I share my story with them, they're like, but we're told that uh, that's not, you know, there's a different kind of socialism. We're talking about the ones in Denmark. We're talking about the ones in Switzerland. You know, we're not talking about the ones that's in China or Soviet Union. And then you have to educate them, you know, well, what's happening, you know, Denmark and uh, uh, Switzerland. They are not really socialism they do not meet the socialism definition so you have to go from there. so it takes a lot of education um, but I am hopeful in a way that um, I I think for people especially for people like me um, when you talk about the numbers and you know talk about how much pe- how many people like 100 million people uh, died under communism you know those are big numbers those numbers do not make sense for most of, most people, right? They're just too big to comprehend. Um, but for people like me, who we started talking about those personal stories, we share our personal sufferings, that move people more because people can relate to, oh, you know, uh, my dad was suffered because he was sent to like, you know, concentration camp or my, uh, my great grandfather suffered because he owned the land that land were took away. So when you can personalize the suffering, when you can put the faces, you know, to those sufferings, it's a lot more powerful, convincing than you talk about the big numbers, like a hundred million people died. So I think it's also uh, messaging is also important. Education is important. Uh, messaging is also important. And it's, it's something we need to talk about more and talk about more with a, a better messaging. Um, but but we should not shrink it away. We should not throw the towel to say, oh, you know, they just don't get it. Um, you know, there's no hope. No, there's always hope, but we have to fight for it.
1: So you titled your book, The uh, subtitle of the book is um, How China's Aggression Has Backfired. Share with me how it's backfired, because the way I see it, it's looking pretty good
0: <laughs> so yes um depends on how you look at it they are you know they, they are generally still looking pretty good especially since we changed administration now uh, but there are some backfire i mentioned in my book as the second half of my book i give plenty of examples um you know for example from the trump former trump administration especially in the second years uh, i mean the uh, the second half of the Trump administration, um, the administration signed the several Human Rights Act you know, for the Uyghurs and the Hong Kong Hong Kongers and uh, you know, closed the embassy, one of the Chinese embassies and sanctioned the senior Chinese uh, ofi- party officials. None of this ever happened before. It's like the first time in history um, because you have someone in the White House Back then, you have someone in the White House who is wait, was waiting to confront China regardless of the cost. So um, that's what happened. You know you what, know, can, I, can
1: I just interrupt you a second? What I find so amazing, because you brought it up, and I, I think it's such a great point, is that under Trump, uh, there were I think there are still 5 million or so Uyghurs in concentration camps. And mm-hmm. these are Muslims. And Trump was painted as anti-Muslim. And here, at the same time, he's signing legislation against the Uyghurs and against China for what they're doing to the Uyghurs. Mm -hmm. Um, I should write I'm sorry, I said against the Uyghurs, for the Uyghurs, trying to Mm -hmm. get public recognition for them and human rights, so and so on and so forth. Iran, a Muslim country, is signing deals with China. And Trump is painted as anti-Muslim. I just find the irony in that uh, just glaring.
0: Right. So a additional example: uh, the backlash example um, with the United States leadership. You see uh, Australia, which is one of our, you know, allies. Australia led the push to demand the WHO to do investigation on the coronavirus origin, and Australia has taken a lot of heat from China, you know, subject Australia beef and wine subject to sanctions, but Australia, you know, held it to it. And then you look at the United Kingdom. So prior to the coronavirus pandemic. Um the Trump administration urged United Kingdom not to hire Huawei, which is a uh, China uh, Chinese uh, telecom giant to build 5G network in United Kingdom because of data security issues. And But but because Huawei was cheap, right? As you said about the CEO thinking from the shareholder values. So uh, United Kingdom, even under the uh, you know, uh, Boris Johnson, who's a conservative party leader, he was like, no, we're going to, we're going to use Huawei because it's, you know, because it's cheap. And no, re- he regarded, he disregarded warnings from the Trump administration. Okay. He's going to go ahead as late as January last year. He was going to go ahead and hire Huawei to build a 5G network. Uh, even though the Trump administration warned him that if you're going to do this, we will stop sharing intelligence with you. And Johnson was like, I'm going to do it no matter what, because it's cheap, it's necessary. Um, but after the coronavirus pandemic uh, breakup, after, what, after witnessed what the China did to Hong Kong, I mean, United Kingdom has a special interest with uh, Hong Kong, obviously. So after witnessed those two things, in May last year, the Johnson administration announced that they dropped Huawei from its, uh, you know, 5G network, you know, contractors. Mm-hmm. And so so to me, that's a significant move. That's 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 a backlash also. And then you look at the public opinions. To me, that's the biggest backlash. Because last year when Pew Research did, did a poll uh, around uh, worldwide, a public, the public opinions of China and especially on the a Chinese leader dropped 75%. So that's what I'm saying. People are waking up. Maybe the elite class in their country, their political leaders are not fully there yet, but the people are waking up, people recognize this. To me, that's the biggest backlash. And you start to see more countries are speaking out about the Uyghur issues uh, after United States called the, uh, what China did to the Uyghurs uh, constitute a genocide. You know, United States, was the, first, the Trump administration was the first government that did that. And then now you have several other countries uh, following, say, "Oh well, yeah, this is a genocide. And now you have more countries, uh, uh, including EUs, uh, and Canada are sanctioning you know, senior Chinese uh, party officials uh, because of what they did to the Uyghurs. So you, it's not a um, big wave yet, again, because the cost of confronting China, but you definitely see those green shoots. And you have to give credit where credit is due. It's because the Trump administration took a lead on that, regardless of cost, you know, from the trade war, closing embassies, signing the Human Rights Act for the Uyghurs and the Hong Kongers, with all the serious actions. Then you saw, at least our allies, you know, joined us, began to take actions as well. So that's why Americans' leadership is so important in this Regard.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I remember seeing a, a study that showed uh, the EU, uh, how China is losing a lot of credibility with the EU and less trusting among the EU partners.
0: Right. The EU is an interesting case study because the EU, um, at the beginning of this, uh, this year, the EU signed a, a giant, very comprehensive uh, investment deal with China, again, ignoring the the warnings from both the Trump administration as well as the Biden administration. Um, But now, given all the exposure, all the new revelations of the the forced labor issues in in, in Uyghurs, uh, uh, the the crackdown on democracy activists in Hong Kong, and now the EU is actually uh, talking about that they are not gonna rectify that Treaty deal they just signed back in January. So it, it, it is happening, but it, it takes a lot of backbone and the courage, you know, especially for politicians. You know, not that you just say this is the value we stand for, actually use your action to prove this is the value we stand for, right? Yeah. We're not gonna just, we're not gonna just say, you know, uh, pat our back for green energy even though we know it's built on the back of you know, forced labors and you know, from a dirty coast, you know, we're not going to do all that. We, we, we're going to take the pain, endure short-term pain to stand up, uphold the values you know, you know, we hold dear. So there's a, we need to see more of that, basically.
1: Yeah, no, you spot on. You made me more optimistic. I'm happier after I'm speaking with you. That's great. So the last thing I want to talk about, well, two things I want to talk about quickly. The South China Sea, that to me is a flashpoint for World War III. Am I, am I off on that?
0: No, I actually talk about this in my book. I said that if the United States and China are gonna go to war, uh, one likely place is in, uh, you know uh, Taiwan, which Taiwan is, you know, is in South China Sea, and or just on South China Sea, because there were already several close contact between US Navy and the Chinese Navy over the years. So what China is doing in the South China Sea, I have an entire chapter about the South China Sea in my book, because again, it's complicated. There's a lot of history in there. Um, basically, South China Sea was another US policy failures. Um, back under Obama administration, that's when China started to building an artificial island in the South China Sea. And they first built one. United States did not reject. Then they built two. So, Again, the United States was standing by, the, the Obama administration stood by as China build more and more. So within three years, China reclaimed over 3,000 acres of artificial land. And basically, now not only all those land are militarized, China established an administrative you know, district on those island. Now it so China basically have this attitude. If I build it, it's mine. Not only it's mine, it's always been mine. It's historically always mine, okay? So now they claim they control 90% of the South China Sea and it's always theirs, okay? And the South China Sea is such an important strategic body of water, not only because of the international trade, but also because of the huge deposit of minerals and, you know, uh, energy, oil, gas and oil. And also there's so many countries Southeast Asia countries, including our allies, like the Philippines and Japan, their livelihood depends on that body of water. So, so yes, it's, it's, it's another flashpoint. And it's our policy failure result that to become a flashpoint, unfortunately.
1: So w- w- what's going to happen? We're, how do you see that playing out? Because China keeps testing, pun intended, testing the waters, especially that mm-hmm. they have flyovers yes. to Taiwan. They start mm-hmm. uh, build, you know, sending military ships through certain areas to expand their borders, and basically this is brinkmanship 101. This is how you do it, right? You send a warship through, you go into another territory, you go into the airspace, you see where the pushback's coming from. Where do you see this ending? Like, are we going to have to stand up? The United States is going to have to send aircraft carriers and hope that the Chinese government stands down?
0: Well, so... Yes and no. So this, so basically this is like a staring contest, right? See who's going to blink first. So United States have to, uh, on the one hand, to make it clear to the Chinese that the uh, United States is never going to blink first. It has all the firepower it's need to maintain the freedom of navigation in South China Sea and United States has the legal obligation to protect the Taiwan according to the Taiwan Act. So the United States government has to make that clear.
1: So wait, Helen, let me me check one second. Knowing Mm -hmm. the Chinese the way you do, knowing the Chinese government the way you do, do you think that uh, they would blink first?
0: Depends. So we have to separate the. uh, Taiwan from the rest of the South China Sea, right? Because because uh, I think from the rest of the South China Sea, the stake is higher in terms of naval war. Um, you know, China's navy has de- fastly developed in the last decade, but in terms of just hardware power, they're still not quite there against the U.S. Navy yet. Um, but when it comes to Taiwan, that's a different story. The it's always been the Communist Party's objective to uh, take over Taiwan. And they never give up military take take it over. Initially they're trying to they're trying to take it over through economic means. You know, in the last last several decades, did they deepen intentionally deepen economic ties with from mainland, both mainland and Taiwan? But they realize by now they realize that's a failure because now Taiwan has a government that that is a democratic elected, and they're historically more for Taiwan's independence than reunited with China. And after what's happened in Hong Kong that the, the more Taiwanese, especially younger generation Taiwanese really do not identify as Chinese anymore. You know, they, they mostly just want a status quo basically means, okay, we don't have to declare independence but we don't want to be part of you and we don't want to be like, you know, Hong Kong. So so now the Communist Party recognizes that their economic engagement has been a failure. And so now they're more inclined to military, you know, uh, military, uh military means, and we what we see this daily airplane fly over, you know the the Chinese military, uh, navy carriers, you know sitting by, those are just their ways to exhaust the Taiwan's defense. So hopefully, you know the Taiwanese will say we'll just surrender without have to actually going to fight, right? So what the United States can do is to enhance help Taiwan enhance its defense, and also again that's what I'm saying, make it clear it's um, it's not going to stand by if China do something with Taiwan. So so this has to be a calculation from both sides to see how much the cost is going to be and whether it's worth it when it comes to Taiwan. Right, especially I, I think it's worth it.
1: No, I'm saying I'm just sorry to interrupt, but especially now when we do still have a technological edge in terms of hardware and software in terms of the military, because that is going to be kind of equal in a few more years, from what I've been reading, and then China yes. will have the upper hand. So while we have the edge, we should press it. Is that what you're saying?
0: No, I don't. I didn't say we should press it, but I, what I'm saying is we should make it clear that um, make the cost is so high that it's not worth it. to China Military taken with Taiwan, they were not doing it. And one thing I do want to mention about Taiwan is it's not just our allies, but it also uh, think about the techno from a technology perspective. Taiwan Semiconductor is one of the largest, the most important semiconductor suppliers. It it, it
1: is is the largest. It's the largest in the world.
0: That's what I'm saying. The largest, right? Amazing. Yeah. So so China's want to take over Taiwan again, not just for territorial, but also they're eyeing for for that company because China's semiconductor industries is still, you know, far decades behind in terms of technology, you know, advancement. So if they were if they're able to take over Taiwan semiconductor, it will jumpstart China's technology industry in light years. Okay. And same thing for United States. So we have to take all those things into consideration. I mean, there's just, just a lot of lot of chess pieces in play. Yeah, regarding. yeah,
1: yeah. And you know, uh, what scares me is they're willing to play the long game and the long game wins in these kind of conflicts. We have to have the resolve and uh, really the foresight to say, look, short-term pain, but long-term, if we don't do this, they win.
0: Right. I do want to emphasize one thing about long game though. So, um, the Chinese government, the Communist Party is very good at both long games and short games. I mentioned in the opening in my book, why why do we see, especially under the current leadership, that the Chinese government is acting so assertively, so aggressively, you know, with the oof, you know, diplomacies, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. attacking other countries, this and that, very aggressively. It's because China has facing internal challenges, which is their demographic. Uh, the dem- demographic crisis. You know, China is losing its demographic dividend. The workforce is shrinking while it- the rest of the population is fastly aging. So it's that demographic challenges actually forced the hand of the government to abandon the Deng Xiaoping's policy of, you know, high your strengths, beat your time. Now they're, now they're like, we're not gonna beat our time because we don't have a whole lot of time. So we need to be as aggressive as possible to get as much as we wow. can now. So, so, so that's why I don't want to ask you only to emphasize long game. It's long game take China to the current state, but they may be very eager to play short game. So we have to be good at both.
1: Wow, wow, that's long
0: game, short game.
1: Yeah, that's great insight. That is really great insight. Zero population growth, the fact that their uh, their workforce is going to be declining drastically over the next years. The the, the, the problem of the one child uh, policy, which is policy. now coming into into play. Wow, they got so many things to deal with. Uh, Helen, I'm so glad you took the time today. You've really enlightened me, and I, I guarantee you, my listeners, the book is backlash. How China's aggression has backfired. Go out and get this book. It is an eye opener. By the way, you write really well. I, you know, I, I, I just think if I, I don't know how many, even if I was in China for 25 years, I can never write Mandarin or any Chinese. It's just fascinating, fascinating. Just a, tr- it's just a testament to how smart the Chinese people are, and and. Uh, and your book really is, is something, you know, I was thinking, uh, is your book sent to policymakers or to members of Congress? Have you been doing that? Or have anyone uh, has thought about doing that?
0: Well, I cannot discuss this openly, um, but I hope that some of them will read my book.
1: Oh, okay, great. So if you, you know, buy the book, send it to your congressman, send it to your Senator, buy it on Amazon, get the thing. Cause it's, it's really 20 bucks. It's well worth it. First of all, uh, it, it'll give the policymakers a real good insight into what actually is going on. Because, uh, like I said, you really have a very balanced view. You're not an alarmist. I like the way you take a very even-handed, logical, pragmatic approach. And you lay out a plan of how, how we can stop this. Uh, really, uh, great job, Helen. Absolutely great job.
0: Thank you, Charles.
1: Okay, Helen uh, Helen Rolly, thank you so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel
0: on YouTube.